Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. through 33 is what we're going to be looking at. Uh, of course, a continuation of where we were at last time. We had, uh, we're, we're into roles, responsibilities. This is a husband, wife, family uh, matters that we have here. And this time we have the charge to the husband. Um, so let's look there. As Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we ask that you would give us help as we look towards your word. Uh, Father, frankly, for very practical instruction here as it pertains to us as husbands and leaders in our home, what that means for us, um, that this is something that is of the utmost importance, not just in our home, but in our culture and how it affects our culture and what our church is doing in our culture. And this picture of the gospel that Paul has has put together for us in what our marriages are to look like. Uh, Father, give us help in this. Uh, guide us through this. Help me um, to, to say helpful things and, uh, and, and not ignorant things. But Father, uh, use it for your purpose and, and help us to be useful for you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're going to look at the role of the husband in a couple parts here. And uh, the first uh, part we're going to kind of look at, like we did last time, we're going to look at the kind of the state of marriage in our culture. We did that last time. Some of this is going to be kind of a repeat, but I, I'm going to say, and, and, and I'll say this, Josh will say this, you know, we, we have to hear things over and over. Our culture does things over and over to inundate us with uh, uh, stupidity and nonsense. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, we can adapt some of that stupidity and nonsense. So it's good for us to hear things over and over that, um, that, that are uh, good and right and indeed biblical. And so 
We will look at the state of marriage in the culture here briefly, like we did last time, whenever we uh, were in uh, verse 22 and following there up to this point. And then uh, what we as a church can do and should be doing uh, to combat this and to go after this. And, uh, and then we'll kind of look at the husband's motive for loving his wife. And then having all of that as a foundation, uh, we'll look at that command concerning love our wives and kind of the dimensions of what that looks like because it's not just a flat uh, one-dimensional thing. Uh, so again, like last time, we kind of have the doom and the gloom up front, right? We kind of have that up front and all this stuff that sees, man, this is, this is just horrible. We're going to go walk off a cliff. We can't, I don't want to hear this anymore, but the good comes after, right? And so we will, don't, so don't shut me off there as we get into all what might be called negative stuff, but hang on for the better stuff there towards the end. Um, now, as we look at marriage uh, and we say that this relationship between husband and wife is one of the most, if not the most precious relationship that God has ordained for us, that God has given to us. And one of the ways that we recognize that our lives are made meaningful and have purpose and have meaning is by relationship. And here specifically, this relationship uh, between a man and a woman in marriage. But fulfillment in marriage in our culture is rare. It shouldn't be. But in our culture, the way it is, it is rare. The big joke that we find, I work with uh, several young guys, and uh, some of them unmarried, some of them soon to be married. Um, and, uh, and since I work in an engineering department, it's kind of like a locker room, uh, which is unfortunate, but it's kind of the way that it is. And so I hear th these things, and, and you observe the things that these guys say. And the big joke to these guys that are going to be married soon is, hey, you need to go live it up now because your life's going to be over, and, and just on and on and on with all kinds of other nonsense. Of course, I comment on this and I because I can't help to uh, address some of the stupidity that's coming out of their mouths. But then we see some of the, uh, of the bachelor parties that represent this living it up before your life ends nonsense. And it's a very unfortunate thing. And, and a lot of that gets laughed off and it's, and it's a big joke and all of it, but it's, it's extraordinarily unfortunate because it just takes us deeper and deeper and deeper into a debauched culture that uh, lands us where we are. So unfortunately, a marriage that continually gets richer and better and more satisfying is somewhat rare today. Now, even worse than this, as we said last time, and we repeat here, is that there are many loud voices in our culture that claim that this very institution of marriage has failed. It's failed. It's failed to meet people's needs. Remember what we said before. That's not the purpose, right? My wife is not here just to meet my needs, right? I'm not there just to meet her needs. That's not what this is about. This is about the gospel. This is about glorifying God, right? And this meets needs, but that's not the primary thing. The problem is not that marriage has failed because marriage by so many is just avoided altogether, right? In place of the effort and determination to fulfill the commitment uh, that it takes to make a marriage work, the solution becomes just to bail out, right? There have been those that said because the institution is falling apart, because, I mean, 
if you had a business where 50% of that business is failing, what do you do with the business? Well, you shut it down, right? I can't do this anymore. This isn't working. So we're just going to abandon this for something altogether different. So the alternatives, because this is only 50% successful anyway, we come up with alternatives. So you find new things like um, living together outside of wedlock, living communally, serial divorce, um, new divorce laws to eliminate all guilt whatsoever because we don't want to feel guilty because that hurts us, right? And all of this moving towards new forms of male-female relationship or other things that go horrible places. One said, that, uh, said this, uh, he said, and this is a secular unbeliever, says, it would take a bolder man than I to predict what will emerge. Well, I don't think it's really difficult to predict what will emerge. And we see kind of what emerges. You know, I'll just take a real quick tangent uh, just this past week. Whenever you have a judge in the highest court of the land that will not define what a woman is and says, I'm not a biologist, you know, as we think about something like that and we think about what will emerge and we think about that there, you know, there's been 900,000 funny little memes that have addressed that ridiculous statement. But it's really not funny because whenever you can't do that, that leaves everything under the sun open. And this is obviously so we see what's emerging, right? We see what's emerged. And, and we look at the culture and see the disaster. But for those of us that are trusting God's word, we say it really doesn't take boldness to see what's happening. We just look towards God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Understand this, that in the last days there will, become, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power avoid such people then skipping to verse 13 while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived I know it's not happy right it gets better what we see in this overwhelming list of sins there is that um, that which is directly all of that which is directly undermining the home today and undermining the family those such as disobedience to parents, lack of love, uh, the term there actually means a lack of affection for your own family, brutality, every and all these sins that weaken the individual also weaken the home to some extent. Every aspect of ungodliness weakens the relationship between husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. The home then becomes fair game for every deceiver and pervert and exploiter as Satan then mounts his attack on what is the foundation stone of society. Now, because of the curse on marriage and the fall, the inclination of man's fallen nature and of the world to oppose the way of God, the family has always had difficulty since that point of the fall. But we look at this right now and we say, well, this seems like an onslaught of which hasn't been. Um, there is less chance than 
ever before for a family, a Christian family, living together in harmony, love, and a mutual respect apart from God's provision in Christ. A corruption pops up. We get a new corruption, uh, which really isn't new, it's just a new twist, but we get a corruption that pops up and what happens? A philosophy pops up to justify it. Christians, dramatic air quotes, Christians are doing this. Something pops up and then I come up with a philosophy to justify it. This will cause things, of course, and does cause things to go from bad to worse as people persist in wickedness. Marriage will be more and more violated and dishonored, and men go deeper and deeper into perversion and selfishness. What was the intent, right? We addressed this as well a little bit. Uh, the intent as marriage was designed before the fall, Adam and Eve. They lived in beautiful harmony, satisfaction. You know, they, whenever somebody looks at somebody else and says, man, they have the perfect marriage. Well, Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage, for real. You know, they had it. It was the perfect marriage. When Adam first saw Eve, he immediately recognized her. That is my perfect companion. I did that, by the way, with my wife. But that is my perfect companion. There's no blemishes, no shortcomings, right? Because why? Be because both Adam and Eve's character, their attitude, it was, all, it was pure. There was nothing there that was impure. There was nothing to criticize in Eve. There was no critical spirit in Adam. Though they were both naked, they were not ashamed. There was no such thing as evil, and there was not a perverse thought, right? That was the intent. Then we come to the post-fall world, right? Things have changed. But the intent and the aim is still Christ. The intent and the aim now is the gospel. And this is what Paul is painting for us here, right? Is a picture of the gospel that this is marriage is redeemed in Christ. Man was created first. He was given authority. He was given headship. That original relationship was so pure. As he was given it, that relationship was so pure, that headship was so pure that his headship and his authority was nothing more than just a manifestation of his consuming love for her. Likewise, her submission to him. Her submission to him was a manifestation of her consuming love for him. There was not selfishness, right? They were identified first in God and then in each other. Marriage was instituted to procreate mankind, to raise up children, to fill the earth. This was the intent, then of course interrupted by the corruption. Remember that we said that the fall involved the perversion of the marital roles, right? Eve sinned by acting in disobedience and failing to consult Adam. Adam sinned by succumbing to the leadership of his wife. He did not exercise his God-given authority. Marriage was corrupted because both man and woman twisted God's plan, took it, twisted, contorted it, and, uh, and, and, and destroyed their relationship. The roles were reversed. Marriage now has been in struggle ever since that time. The unredeemed nature of men and women is self-preoccupied and self-serving. Those characteristics are not the basis for a harmonious marriage relationship, right? So in stark contrast to the culture, God's way to successful marriage focuses on what husbands and wives put into it, not what they will get out of it. 
Now, it should be mentioned that through throughout history and up until um, today, the most dominant distortion of marriage and relationship is on man's side. Um, I will say, and I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think Josh would say as well that when he goes into a marriage situation, uh, like a counseling type situation, he will place the fault squarely on the shoulders of the husband before they even open their mouths. And then he'll find out later what the truth is, right? And, um, but that's what I do because that's what I go into it with. Maybe that's baggage I shouldn't go into it with, but I will put it on it. Why? Why do we do that? Because everything rises and falls on leadership, right? And so that's what, that's the distortion. It often occurs on man's side. It's done in horrible perversions. It's done in women being treated horribly or having her just around for his own pleasure and advantage. The husband blew it completely concerning headship with the fall of the family. Then you have role reversals. You have adultery, the homosexuality, fornication, prostitution, all of these things dragging the family down further. But while all this drags the fundamental foundation of marriage down, what's the culture do? The culture praises those things. It really does. The culture praises these things. If you divorce your wife out in the culture, it's not going to happen here, but if you divorce your wife, it's often applauded. Now you can go and do whatever you like with whoever you like. It doesn't matter. Almost where it's looked up to by some. Now, you know, it's difficult sometimes to make marriage uh, work under the curse when most people are recognizing and seeking to follow God's standards for morality and marriage. It's immeasurably more difficult when it seems that people are mocking those standards continuously. So the only ones that are able to survive a, a, a such the wicked and perverse generation are Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, go back again. We've got to keep going back to when Paul was talking about being filled with the Spirit. This is the ones who are going to survive this wicked and perverse generation. Satan knows by experience that when the home is weakened, all of society is weakened. Why do we have this? I mean, we should look at what happens in the culture and we should say, you know, this is, we know what Satan's doing here, right? If we attack the family, if we attack the home, we can just destroy culture. That's, that's what's going on. Because whenever it is weakened, society is weakened, and uh, human relationships, family weakened, the curse hits mankind at the base of its need which is human relationship. Cole was talking about this morning whenever some of these people would go out in the wilderness and be by themselves they would it, to, to try to become closer to God which was they were messed up in their thinking but they would go nuts. They would lose their minds. Why? Because they're made for relationship. They're not made to sit alone, right? And so the need for men and women to have each other as suitable mates for living productive, meaningful, happy lives on earth is directly linked to dependence on Christ and being filled with the Spirit. Again, drawing from what Paul said before, the world, the world being inspired and led by Satan himself, tells us that meaning and happiness is in serving self, indulging self, being free to express sexual desire however one wants to, whether that through promiscuity, being unfaithful in marriage, partner swapping, all kinds of uh, horrid things, perversions. Uh, 
relationship after relationship proves disappointing then. So people move from relationship to relationship trying to fulfill fantasized satisfaction. The fact is that you men are responsible to her. You're responsible to her. And a good part of the passage is dedicated to that love, which we will get to here in just a bit. Um, but there's a motive here. We're going to skip towards the end of the passage and then come back. The motive. Because we do need to understand, what is the motive? Why do I do this? Is it because I get something in return? Is it because then maybe uh, uh, she's, she's uh, even nicer to me or she uh, uh, does this or that or whatever? What is the motive here? Uh, verse 32, the mystery, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I am saying this as it refers to Christ and the church. Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of what? He paints the picture that this is the church and its relationship with Christ. This mystery, this magnificent and wonderful picture here that men could never discover, that men could not convolute on their own, that was unknown to the, the, the saints of the Old Covenant hadn't had, but now it's revealed and this is magnificent. God's new people, the church, are brought into His kingdom and His family through faith in Christ, right? And so <clears throat> He is the bridegroom. Bridegroom, they are His bride. A husband's greatest motive then, my motive, my purpose, the reason why, my motive for loving, for purifying, that's in the passage, for purifying, for protecting, for caring for his wife is Christ's love, Christ purifying, Christ protecting, Christ caring. That's my motive. The motive is Christ. As Christ cares for his own bride, the church. So Christian marriage is to be loving, caring, holy, pure, self-sacrificing. This characterizes the relationship of Christ and the church. The sacred relationship between Christian husbands and wives is related to the sacred relationship between Christ and the church. That's what's painted here. That's what Paul gives us. So, that's your motive. I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I don't want to make it too difficult, right? That's our motive. It's Christ in the church. Love your wife. That's it. That ends the discussion. We could all go home. We won't, but we could, right? Love your wife. It, it, there's the emphasis there. on That's what's important to remember. That's our motive. It is for Christian husbands and wives to walk in the power of the Spirit, but we only walk in the power of the Spirit when we are yielding to His Word, yielding to His control. And that submission overall then to the Lord Jesus Christ brings great happiness, it brings great harmony and great glory to God. And bringing honor to God is what you're supposed to be about, right? So the command to love your wife is a continuation of that verse 21. When we go back up to verse 21, above the passage that we had last time, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, the way that this works out as it pertains to responsibility of the husband to the wife is through his love for her. The apostle makes clear that this is a, this is a boundless kind of love. 
This is boundless. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And, and, and we look at Christ and we look back to the beginning in chapter 1 of Ephesians in verse 4. And what did Christ do? He chose her and loved her before when? Before the foundations of the world, right? This is due to the fact that God's love is eternally present. There's no past. There's no future here. It's eternally present. So the reality for you and I, husbands specifically here, is the fact that it is obvious that, because what did we say last time? We said as we get into verse uh, 25 right up front, whenever it says, love your wife as Christ loved the church, what do you do? You let out a big sigh and you say, I'm not Jesus, right? Well, first of all, it's not an excuse, but that's not where we go. We don't say, well, I can't do that, so I'm not going to do anything at all. No, I don't have the capacity that Christ has for love, right? I don't have the capacity. I don't have a divine fullness about me. I don't have perfection about me. That which with Christ was loving and uh, forever loving the church. However, there is a point to be made. There is something here, right? Because a Christian has Christ's nature, if we are indeed saved and we do indeed have a new nature, if we are in Christ, because again, we got to keep going back to what Paul's already built on, on being in Christ, which he hits on, of course, <clears throat> in Ephesians there, on that in Christ. And so we take our own nature and now it's a new nature in Christ, the Holy Spirit within us. God is thereby, he's, he's, he's developing, he's providing for us as husbands now to love our wives with a measure with which Christ has loved the church. So again, do that, right? Do that. The husband that submits to the Lord by being, again, filled with the Spirit is able to love his wife with the same kind of love that Jesus had for his own bride, the church. The Lord's pattern for, uh, of love for his church is the husband's pattern of love for his wife. So, as I already said earlier, we come to the, the good stuff, the better stuff, right? The redemption in Christ that, that brings this divine love. And, and there's, there's, again, second string, you get four things. You don't get five or ten, but because uh, there's probably way more here. But the, the thing about it is, you know, this isn't flat, right? There's a lot to this, and there's a lot to this love. And, and, and the qualities of divine love that, that you are to exemplify, that I am to exemplify with my wife. And so, uh, like the Lord's love, husband's love is to be, it is to be sacrificial. It is to be purifying. It is to be caring and it is to be unbreakable. So we look at the sacrificing portion of this. And when Christ came to earth and when Christ put on flesh, it wasn't a surprise to him what that was going to mean. Okay, Christ knew full well exactly what it would mean to put on flesh and come to earth. It meant that he would be mocked. He would be ridiculed. He would be maligned. He would be rejected. He would be beaten. He would be finally then <clears throat> crucified. Right. He knew what it would be what would be demanded of him, it would, what would be demanded of his eternal love if there was truly going to be provided salvation to me and you. He knew. There was no question. 
Now, when we think about all of that and what that means, when there's something as frankly simple as a bump in the night or glass breaking downstairs, there shouldn't be a question on who goes and checks that out, right? Um, you know, and, and really, that's just one of those practical things as we think about sacrifice as important as my sleep might be to me. And, and you know, my wife will tell you that my sleep is important to me. Um, but there shouldn't be a question on who's going to go look into that, right? I mean, when we think about, you know, here's Christ. Christ knew the mocking, the ridicule, and that, lawn, that road that then would take him to the cross, right? All that that meant. And then I, oh, I know there's nothing down there. I know that that bump was just the house settling that this thing happened. No, I go, you, you grab a golf club, a baseball bat, a flashlight, a 45, whatever it is that you take with you, you just go do that. And then you go back to bed, right? We know as we think about sacrifice, we know that his sacrifice, it was determined in heaven before a single soul was created. And because every created soul became sinful in Adam's fall and only worthy of death and, and frankly, hell, Jesus' sacrifice was of grace, purely of grace. We certainly did not and cannot earn that. Jesus' love for his church uh, not only is sacrificial, but it is graciously sacrificial. There is grace with that sacrifice. The reason that we would say that is because I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be cleansed. I do not deserve to be placed within God's kingdom as his own child. He sacrificed for us, not because we're lovely, not because we're worthy, but in spite of the fact that we're unlovely and worthy. Now, how different is that than the world? How much different is that than what we see in the culture? The world's love is, is just object-oriented. A person is loved because of attractiveness. A person is loved because of maybe personality or prestige or, or just list out however many positive characteristics you can name. The world loves with that that it decides is worthy to be loved. I'm glad that Jesus didn't make a decision on whether I was worthy to be loved or not, because there would be no love if that was the case. The problem with all of that is that when a husband loves a wife like that, whenever I decide, well, is, is she worthy to be loved? Well, you can bet that if he doesn't repent and he doesn't trust Christ, that is a marriage that will soon fall apart, if it hasn't already. A husband is not commanded to love his wife because of what she is or is not. Love her because of. So whenever, whenever the 17-year-old the uh, girl asks her boyfriend, why do you love me? And he says, because you're so pretty. And she, oh, you know, and because you're so sweet, oh, you know, and she loves all the, that's stupid, right? Because what if tomorrow she's not pretty? What if tomorrow she's not nice? What if she's a mean old hag, right? What if this happens? What do you do then? Well, now all of a sudden, does he not love her anymore? Is that the way this works now? You're not loved, to, commanded to love her because of what she is or isn't. You're commanded to love her because it's God's will for you to love her. 
period. Now, it's not wrong for you to admire her beauty. It's not wrong for you to admire her kindness, right? It's not wrong for you to admire her gentleness. I'm not telling you to go out and search for somebody who's just mean and nasty, right? I mean, that's not the case. It's not wrong for us to admire those things about her, any quality, any virtue that she might have. Those things do bring blessing, right? They do bring enjoyment, right? But those things are not the bond of marriage. What if every so-called appealing characteristic disappeared from your wife tomorrow? It all disappeared. That doesn't matter because that's not what this is about, right? That's not what this is about. If anything, now it's arguable that you're under greater obligation now to love her, to cherish her, because that's the picture that Paul painted us, right? in this gospel picture of marriage. That now, if all of that was to happen, it's not, it's likely not going to happen, right? But what if it did? Then I think we could argue that you'd be under greater obligation because her need is greater. Her need for healing, her need for restorative power is, uh, is greater. Your, her need for your selfless love is greater. That should sound something like Christ in the church, right? Because that's where we are. That's the kind of love that Christ has for his church, and it's therefore uh, the kind of love that a Christian husband is to have for his wife. Love does whatever needs to be done, and it doesn't count cost. It doesn't count merit. Whatever is needed is that which it gives, right? It doesn't matter if it's rejected or appreciated. Love continues as long as the need continues. The husband that loves his wife only because she's physically attractive or has a pleasing disposition uh, does not love her as Christ loves the church. Again, that's how the world loves. That's what the culture's doing. If he loves her because she's basically a slave, again, this is how the self-serving world behaves, not God's people. Instead, if he is willing to give his life for her, he dies to self in order to live for his wife because that is what Christ's kind of love demands. It is true. The world is continually telling men to be, you know, be macho, defend yourself, right? Assert yourself, to bring attention to yourself, to live totally for yourself. But God tells the Christian man to give himself up for others. More than any of those others, his wife. Just as Christ gave himself up for the church, this is to be sacrificial. But also, as we see in this passage, it is to be purifying. So if husbands are going to love their wives as Christ loves the church, then he is to do that with a purifying love. Divine love does not simply condemn wrong. You're bad and then move on, right? It's not simply to condemn the wrong in those that are loved, but it seeks to cleanse them from it then. 
Christ's great love for His church does not allow Him to be content with sin. Okay, there's not contentment with sin. There's not contentment with moral and spiritual impurity. The Word is the agent that purifies and sanctifies. And the objective is that we would be presented to Christ as His own beloved and eternal bride, to dwell in His glorious presence forever. Love wants only the best for the one loved. And it can't bear for a loved one to be corrupted or misled by anything that is evil or anything that is harmful. So a husband that is loving as Christ will seek to help purify her from any sort of defilement. So further, when a young man says that uh, he loves a woman, maybe one that he's planning on marrying, uh, but wants her to compromise sexual purity before they are married, um, his love is the world's lust. It's not God's love, and therefore it's not love at all. It's selfish and self-serving. That's the twisted love that defiles. It doesn't purify. A husband that goes and flirts with the secretary at work gives his wife reason to feel rejected, gives her reason to feel lonely, gives her reason to feel a lot of things, to the point where she may begin flirting herself. So concerning that which is purifying, Christ cleansing of believers, this is not ceremonial. This is not symbolic. This is very, very real, right? It's very, very complete. And that's what we are to do, husbands. That's what we are to do and what we are to show our wives. But also there is to be a caring, right? It's a love that is to be affectionately caring. This is to the point that he cares so much for her welfare as he does the welfare of his own body, but more so. So speaking of the body, uh, folks have always been very concerned about their bodies, but there I, arguably hasn't been a time, at least in my history, where people have been more uh, pampered, maybe even sinfully pampered, um, protected, nourished, uh, and indulged as the body in this day right now. Uh, the amount of money spent just to decorate, protect, enhance, comfort the body, display the body, uh, that would be a scary number to calculate, I would think. But when a husband meets the needs of his wife with the same care and concern, or more so, right, with which he meets his own body, he will have a sense of well-being. He will have a sense of pleasure as a byproduct of his love. So the husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church will do no more harm to her, unless they're, they're so, than he would his own flesh. He seeks to nourish her and cherish her just as he would himself, more so because that is how Christ does the church. So when she needs strength... He gives strength. If it's encouragement, He gives her that. This is to supply her needs. There's something bad wrong if she is looked at just as a, a cook, a housekeeper, an occasional companion when needed, or a sex partner. Your wife is a God-given treasure to be loved, to be cherished, to be cared for, and to be nourished. So provide for her needs to which will help her grow in God. It's our responsibility as husbands to give warmth, to give protection, to give security. To not provide for her would be essentially not providing for yourself. 
And so this develops this unbreakable love. It must be an unbreakable love if it's going to be as Christ loves the church, right? Because that is unbreakable. There is no breaking Christ's love for the church. Verse 31 again tells us, as we look at, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, this one flesh relationship. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about that uh, several times. Josh has been on that uh, several times. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, going down that road. We, we get that. We've got a foundation for that. But that tells us, um, we, we can see from that, that one of the greatest barriers to a successful marriage is the failure of one or both partners to leave father or mother. You see, in a marriage, a new family has been created, right? And, and you know, we might need to remind our kids sometimes, we were a family before you got here, you know? And, and you know, it's, it's, this is a new family, right, that has been created. And, 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 and so now the former relationships of authority, the former uh, of, of before the authority relationships that were there have now been severed, for lack of a better word. Parents are to be loved, of course, always. Parents are always to be loved. Parents can be there for counsel, uh, the, for questions, for counsel. Um, but they are not any longer to control the lives of their children, right? That's not the responsibility anymore once they are married. When this happens, and we've all seen this happen, uh, this does cause problems. Hold fast and cleave, right? There's a cleaving. There is a joining together. And, and I think of it in one of my former lives, uh, I used to splice fiber optic cable. And you can't take like two wires you take and you twist them together. It's not the way fiber optics work. You do that, you'll be breaking stuff. No, you have to fuse it together. You have to cleave it together. You have to bring this together for it to work properly, right? And so it's, again, glued, cemented together. This is what we're getting at. Leave and cleave. There's something that you've left. There's something that you've come to. And now for those of us who have cleaved to our spouses, we just don't separate ourselves um, from our spouses now that sin against us. Your spouse will sin against you, and you will sin against your spouse. That's going to happen. That doesn't mean that we just, well, this is done, we've separated. No, because you're cleaved together, right? You are together. So we just don't separate ourselves. As Christ is forgiving of believers, husbands and wives are to be forgiving of one another. We see an example in Israel, right? God chose Israel to be His people. What did they do? They committed spiritual adultery, right? whoring after false gods. But what was he determined to do? He was determined to love them with an everlasting, unbreakable love. In the end, the true believers were secure in his saving grace. Death is God's only desired dissolution for marriage. Now, there's provision for adultery. There's provision for abandonment. But that's not a command, right? This, his dissolution for marriage is death. This is ordained to be a one flesh relationship. God's design for marriage is that it would be indivisible. You harm your wife, you harm yourself. You violate your marriage, you violate yourself. You destroy your marriage, you destroy part of yourself. We think of Hosea. We see the message, right? Hosea's wife, Gomer. 
unfaithful to the extreme. You know, as we look at unfaithfulness and we see people that, that, that are unfaithful and, we, and we, we see those things, we witness those things, we, we see his wife and just unfaithful to the extreme, not just committing adultery, but even becoming a prostitute. Hosea kept loving her, kept forgiving her, which was a picture of God. And then you could stop there and you could say, oh, wait, 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 wait. That was meant to be a picture, right? It is. But you'd say, oh, that's meant to be a picture. That's not real stuff. No, that's real stuff. That's real stuff, right? Yes, it was meant to show something with Israel and God, but this is real stuff. The more Gomer sinned, the more he forgave her. And what does this reflect? Well, it reflects God's gracious forgiveness of his sinning people, and that's what our marriage is supposed to look like. It's important that we see this, men specifically. When you are a husband and you see faults and failures in your wife, even if she were to be unfaithful and as, as wretched as, as Gomer, uh, we should realize that she has not offended you to the fraction of what you've offended God. And God has immeasurably more to forgive in us than we have to forgive in each other, especially our wives, that which God has given to us as a treasure and a gift. So I ask, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Well, we know what the answer to that question is, but what I can tell you as a result of that answer is love her more, right? Love her more. Be sensitive, be understanding, be considerate, be courteous to her as it pleases God, um, being, uh, yes, the relationship that it is, but also the best of friends. It's another wonderful thing, yet that you, you leave a legacy then to your children as well. Girls will have an idea of how they're supposed to be loved, right? You know, you see girls that come out of homes where parents, it, it wasn't there. It, it, it messes with their heads badly. But in this picture that Paul is painting, this brings girls out of homes that have an idea how uh, they are to be loved, right? Sons will get an idea of how they're supposed to be loving, right? But we're only going to do this through submission to Christ, for us to submit and repent, trusting Christ and everything, especially uh, the most important of our relationships, right? This is the way we glorify God. We repent, we trust Christ, and we have a God-honoring life, but we also have a God-honoring home and a God-honoring family that cultivates harmony in Christ. But you have to know Him. If you don't, I would plead with you to come speak to me, speak to Josh about Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you for what Christ has done. We thank you for the forgiveness that has been obtained in Christ. But Father, now as a result of that, we have these very practical things for us in our families. And that as we look out at the world and we see all the strife and the dissension and just the horrible things happening, that you have just given us very practical instruction for what we are to do to have... Um, 
peaceful, harmonious homes, and we thank you for that. Uh, Father, may we husbands uh, be loving our wives as we ought, be thankful for our wives as we ought, and uh, cherish them as they ought to be cherished. Uh, Father, help us in this. Um, help us and give us wisdom in this to do this rightly and uh, to love her more and to do this better. Father, we do thank you. We praise you for it. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.